Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We all want to be able to handle suffering and difficulty in a way that even faintly resembles that. Isn't that true? That when the day of trouble comes, don't we all want to be able to cling tightly to the gospel, to face it with hope, to set an example for others, to not be crushed under the weight of bitterness or self-pity or despair or anger. And the day of trouble, friends, if it hasn't come to you already, will arrive on your doorstep one day. It's a fallen world, as Brian mentioned to us in the Confession and Assurance, and trouble awaits us all. And that's what this passage that we're about to look at here in Romans is about, Romans 8, 18 through 25. Um, you see that in verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what Paul is talking about is the reality of suffering, but there's some kind of glory that is so wonderful and so great that it makes our sufferings worth it. That in the end, we will find that the glory we're going to receive and enjoy far outweighs the troubles and suffering that we've been through. That's what Paul is talking about here. And the question that we have to answer is, what is this glory that he's talking about? Because whatever it is, it's a glory I think we all want. We all want to experience this so that we're ready on the day of trouble to deal with it in a godly way and maybe a way something like Monty Williams. Now, here's the way I think a lot of uh, Christians will think about this. And, And maybe some of you have already kind of thought this way. We think, here's my response to suffering. Here's how I know, you know, here's my hope, here's, here's how I'm going to get through it. It's just to know that one day I'm going to go to heaven, that one day I'm going to leave this earth behind, that one day I'm going to be freed from my body and my earthly existence, and I'm going to go away to another place, a heavenly place, and once I get there, I'll be there for all eternity, and all my suffering will then pale in comparison. That's a very typical Christian response, and that would be a right response. Certainly, that is what is promised to Christians. But you know what? That's not exactly what Paul is talking about here in this passage. He's actually talking about something different. He's talking about something better. He's talking about a glory that is so wonderful that if you were to see it and behold it right now and taste it even a little bit, you would know that it is worth it to hang on to Jesus in the midst of your sufferings. You would have no doubt about that if you could see this glory. And that's what Paul is talking about here in this passage. So let's stand and and read Romans 8, 18 through 25 and see what it is that Paul's talking about. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Father, by your Spirit, open our eyes to declare wonderful things in your holy word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The glory that Paul is talking about here in Romans 8 is something that might sound a little contrary to you, but it's the fact that heaven is actually a place on earth. Now, if you've been here in New Life for any length of time, you've heard me address this topic You've heard me talk about it. It's one of my favorite to talk about. It happens to show up here now in Romans 8 as we're going through this book one passage at a time. So um, we'll take it up again. For some of you, this might be review. For others of you, it might be the first time you've heard some of the things that are in this glorious text. Heaven is a place on earth. So to understand this, we need to think of a few things. And the first is this, the curse on creation. That's one of the first things that comes out of this passage. You've noticed this theme of creation in the earth um, in the service so far. And it's definitely true that in the biblical story, there is a very strong central emphasis on the goodness and value of creation. Creation is mentioned five times, the word creation, five times in this passage. And I'm kind of using creation in earth a little bit synonymously. Um, What I think Paul means by creation is the earth and all that it contains. So we're talking about physical existence. We're talking about mountains and oceans and fields. Did you hear the call to worship? Let the fields exult. What is that talking about? How do fields praise God? How do mountains and the seas praise God? That's the way the Psalms talk. Trees, sun, physical matter is very important to God. Now, there are different views about the place of physical matter in our world, different kind of philosophical ways of approaching it. One view we might call naturalism. Uh, This is um, the view that matter is all that matters. That is that there is no spirit, there is no soul, there is no supernatural dimension to our existence. This is typically the Um, Darwinist or evolutionary, atheistic point of view, that the only thing that exists is what we can see and touch, the physical creation, and matter is all that matters. The other view I'm going to call spiritualism. That word can refer to other things as well, but by spiritualism, I mean the idea that matter doesn't matter, (laughs) that what we at essence really are our souls and spirits. And what is most important to God and what should be most important to us are our souls and our spiritual life. And our bodies and the earth and the physical creation is secondary. It's not really that important. It's just something that's going to be cast aside one day and left behind. That, that it might even be the actual source of evil in this world. It's our createdness. It's our bodies. It's the earth. That's the problem. That's what a lot of people think, and that's what a lot of Christians think. 
the ultimate hope for a lot of Christians is, I want to get out of here. I want to go to heaven. I want to go somewhere else. I don't want to be here anymore. This earth is a wretched mess. Get me out of here. That's the hope for a lot of believers. And it's certainly a view that we see in our culture. Here's uh, Carrie Underwood, singer, song called Temporary Home. This is my temporary home. It's not where I belong. Windows and rooms that I'm passing through, this is just a stop on the way to where I'm going. I'm not afraid because I know this is my temporary home. I'm just on earth for a few moments, and eventually I'll get to heaven where I'll be in my real home. Now, again, this is just a very common view among even Christians, and I just want you to see how earthy the Bible is, how much emphasis there is on the physical creation. I mean, think about it. God creates Adam and Eve and puts them in a garden. The Bible begins with God putting two naked people in a garden and then telling them that here's all these beautiful trees for you to look at, and here's all this wonderful food for you to eat. That's the way, and, and, then, and by the way, take care of this, cultivate, and be gardeners for all history. That's God's original intent before the fall. That's a pretty earthly existence, isn't it? We see in Genesis chapter 9, after the fall, that God makes a covenant. We know about God's covenant relationship with believers, but do you know in Genesis 9 that it says God made a covenant with the earth? He covenanted. He made a promise. He entered into a kind of a relationship with the earth and with animals as well. Remember Exodus, the book of Exodus. Israel is enslaved in Egypt, and they are finally freed. And to what place did God deliver them? Where did he take them? He took them to a land flowing with milk and honey, a very earthly place where there was much to be enjoyed. Think about the sacraments. We just saw a baptism. What is it that's so important about the sacraments? It's the physical substance of the sacraments. It's the water that you saw poured on Ben's head. When we take communion, it's the bread that we hold in our hands and put in our mouths. It's the cup that we taste in our mouths. It's so physical. And there's a reason for that. God loves creation. God loves physical matter. I mean, this is culminates in the incarnation. God, the holy, almighty creator of all things, comes into our earth and takes upon himself a human body in the person of Jesus Christ. In the early centuries, that was an idea that was very challenging to a lot of people. There were what were called Gnostics, holding to a view called Gnosticism, that said that God was too holy to dirty his hands with physical creation. And so they just couldn't accept the idea that God could become a man. But John makes this very clear in 1 John chapter 4. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, in a body, in flesh and bone and skin, in God's creation, you confess that, then we know you're from God then we know you've got it. You know what? It, it's, it is possible to be so spiritual that you're not even a Christian. 
You can be so concerned with the soul and the spirit that you don't get the essence of the gospel. God himself uniting with sin, not sinful flesh, with human body in the person of Jesus and being resurrected from the dead to redeem it all. We look at the end of the Bible in the last chapters of Revelation. What do we see? A a marriage supper of the Lamb, God's people eating food. We see the new Jerusalem, a city coming down to earth. We see a river of life, and we see another tree, the tree of life, as a picture of our eternal existence. Do you see how earthy this all is? Do you see how much God loves the earth? Do you see how central the earth is to His plans? Here's a big mistake that Christians often make, is that because they are so concerned about their soul that they develop a kind of a contempt for the world. That they, all they want to do is leave the world behind and go to heaven. And that puts them in a position where they're not, they're not interested in their neighborhoods. They're not interested in politics or in history. They're not interested in um, music or the arts. They're not interested in making a good meal They're not interested in anything that has to do with physical existence because they think it's all just going to fade away and be discarded one day. That's not biblical Christianity. And it's what makes the effects of the fall so much more tragic. So finally we get to our text here. Look what Paul says, that when Adam sinned and when sin entered the world, the effects of that sin did not just corrupt our spirits and our souls. If you look in verse 20, look what he says, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So what Paul's talking about here is the creation being under some kind of curse says it in verse 21, actually, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's in bondage to decay. The effects of sin, like a rock being thrown into a pond, and you see the ripple just spread out through the pond to the shores. It's like Adam's sin had the same kind of effect. The effects of sin just rippled out from his heart to Eve, to his garden, and spread out through the entire earth. Because here's what God said. So, you know, there's this phrase here, the one who subjected it. The creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it. There's some questions about who who is it that subjected it? Who is it that put creation in this state of futility? Some people say it was the devil. Some people say it was Adam. Adam certainly played a part in it in the fall, but I think who Paul is referring to is God himself when he cursed the earth. Look, Genesis 3, after Adam's sin, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. There's a curse on the earth. Isaiah 24 that we heard earlier in our confession of sin, same thing, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the, a curse devours the earth. Friend, the problem that we have is 
not that we're stuck on the earth. It's not that we're trapped in our bodies. It's not that we have desires for food or for sex or for pleasure. That, that's, at its essence, not the problem. The problem is the sinful inclinations in our hearts. And this is what Jesus came to fix, to lay down his life and shed his blood to forgive us from our sins, not to free us from our bodies. The problem is not the desire we have for living a fulfilling life on the earth. The problem is that we over-desire that and make an idol of it. And that can definitely be a problem. And these desires are corrupted in so many ways because of the fall. But it is not God's desire to somehow achieve salvation by freeing us from our bodies. Adam sinned. The curse was placed on the earth. And as we see here in Romans 8, this is the truth. So secondly, because of the curse of creation, it leads to what the Bible calls the groaning of creation. And this word comes right out of this text, that there's a a kind of groaning, and there's two different kinds of groaning. There's a physical groaning, first of all. Look at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. So in some way, physical matter, the earth groans, our, our, our physicalness expresses itself under the curse in a way of kind of groaning. And, you know, maybe you can think of examples of this. Um, I mean, my, my right toe all last week was just in intense pain. And I don't know why. It just started hurting. I'd turn over in my bed, and I'd catch the toe on a blanket or something, and I'd pull it back. I had to kind of limp to try to offset the pain. I, I didn't stub it. I didn't break it. I, I don't know what happened. Just for three or four days, my toe was killing me. It was like my toe was groaning. The pain of my toe made me groan. My dog, Nico, when he lies down on his bed, I can just hear him. He just groans out. As he lies down, when he sta- every time he stands up, you can just hear him. And then he's all stiff and, you know, kind of walks real slowly until he loosens up a little bit. He's groaning under the curse. You can hear doors creaking in your house and squeaking. It's just all around. If you open your ears, you can hear this kind of groaning coming out of creation. We understand from physics, the second law of thermodynamics, that The universe is running out of useful energy and moving toward a state of entropy. I'm not sure I understand exactly what that means, but something is going on in the universe. The universe is kind of running down in some way, and I know there's, I think, some different views on exactly how that relates to this text, but that could be what Paul is talking about here. The physical earth is groaning. But it's not just physical groaning, there's a spiritual groaning as well. If you look at verse 23, he says it's not just creation that groans, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption, 
to be completed. We learned about adoption when we were in Romans last time, the way God adopted us into his family. Well, there's a more fullness of adoption coming, and we're waiting for that to happen. And in the meantime, our hearts, our souls, our spirits are groaning deep down inside. Now, what I find so interesting about this is that notice he says that we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we in whom the Spirit is living. What Paul is talking about here clearly is Christians, Spirit-filled Christians who groan inwardly. Doesn't that maybe sound a little odd to you? I mean, maybe you're thinking, oh, I thought when I became a Christian, I was supposed to be happy all the time. (laughs) I thought all my problems were supposed to go away. How do we put this together? That people in whom the Holy Spirit is living, people who are redeemed and saved by the blood of Jesus are at the same time people who groan. I mean, this is what the Bible teaches us, and that is that even though we're saved, even though we're redeemed, it doesn't mean we we don't get lonely. It doesn't mean that we aren't still haunted by bad memories. It doesn't mean that we're not still filled with regret about mistakes that we've made and sins that we've committed. It doesn't mean that we don't come into a place like this and wonder who likes us. It doesn't mean that we're not driven sometimes by competition with people and envy and jealousy. It doesn't mean that we don't lose the battle with besetting sins in our life, things we've been fighting all our lives, and there we did it again, and inside we groan. It doesn't mean that we don't deal any longer with the excesses of our temperament, our depression maybe, or our anger. We still carry with us the effects of the fall. So even though the Holy Spirit lives in us, there's a groaning that takes place in the lives of Christians. And I just think, I just, I hope, I hope that the church, I hope that new life is a place that is safe for people to groan. You know, it's okay if somebody asks you how you're doing. If you're not doing so well, it's okay to say, you know what? I'm really struggling. Life is not so good for me right now. I'm groaning inside. I hope we have the freedom to do that. John Stott in his commentary on this passage talks about Christians who sometimes grin too much and groan too little. Nothing wrong with grinning. Some of us have more bubbly personalities. We love smiley people. But don't feel like you've got to always come with a big smile on your face because if you don't, you're some kind of a bad Christian. Because Paul lays it out here. There is a place place for groaning. It's one of the reasons I love the Good Friday service so much. It's like that's the service where it's really appropriate to groan, particularly over our sin and the pain that we've caused our Savior and all that he had to go through to save us from our sin. But this groaning, if we look at verse 22, we see that there's a a metaphor that Paul uses here to talk about this groaning. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And I'm just so glad that Paul used that metaphor because there is something about childbirth that is kind of a kind of a hopeful groaning isn't it um 
You know, when a woman is giving birth, it's a painful thing. There's suffering there. There's certainly groaning, but it's always a groaning in expectation, in anticipation of something really wonderful that's about to happen. And so it hurts and it's painful, but it's looking ahead with hope. It's not a meaningless groaning. And so that's what Paul is talking about here. It's not a groaning in despair. And what gives us ultimately this hope is the last thing, which is the liberation of creation, which Paul talks about here in this passage. You know, every other religion, when it speaks of salvation, is always going to talk about salvation culminating someplace else, out of this world, in a heavenly place somewhere else. As far as I know, I'm not an expert on world religions, but as far as I know, it's only Christianity that says heaven ultimately is a place on earth. It's only Christianity that holds out hope for this earth. It's only Christianity that really acknowledges that life on this earth, even though it's fallen, is good, and there's a future for it. And this is what we see here in verse 24. 24, for in this hope we were saved. So he's talking about salvation. There's a hope here in which we're saved. But if you back up to verses 20 and 21, you'll see what this hope is. The very end of verse 20. Do you see that? In hope. The last two words in verse 20. So what is the hope? It's the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In some sense, there's this gospel hope that the creation is going to be set free. This is part of what salvation is about. Salvation is about forgiveness of sins. It's what Jesus did to justify us before God. It's adoption into the family of God. But there is also this hope that the curse that was placed on the earth will be reversed. It will be undone. It will be taken away. The earth will be liberated. The earth will be saved. The earth will be redeemed. The earth will be fixed. What we have in the gospel is what we can call a cosmic gospel. It's a universal gospel. It's a gospel whose scope goes as far as all of creation. God is not going to lose anything that He created. He loves it all, and He's going to redeem it all, except those who do not place faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the only ones who are going to be lost in the fixing of creation. That's why it's so important. That's why we call on you every Sunday to place faith in Jesus. It's the only way for you to know that you're going to take part in this liberated creation. And the Bible in other places talks about this. Matthew 5, here's the Beatitudes. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit heaven. No. They shall inherit the earth. Now, there is a sense in which heaven is coming to earth, but it's interesting that Jesus emphasizes the inheritance of the earth. We see this in 2 Peter 3. According to his promise, we are waiting for what? To go away to heaven? No, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is just a wonderful promise. One of the most exciting things about the gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ is going to make everything right that is wrong with this world. Everything that's broken is going to be fixed. He's making all 
things new. Not just our souls, but our bodies and the earth as well. I was talking to a friend recently about pineapple, about how much we love pineapple. I mean, you know how good pineapple tastes coming from fallen soil. How good do you think it's going to taste when it comes from redeemed soil? Pineapples in the new earth are going to be really good. You think music sounds beautiful to fallen ears. Think about what music is going to sound like to redeemed ears in a new earth. You look at the, at the sky and see the blueness of the sky on a summer day, and you're just overcome with the depth of that color. That's a fallen sky. You're looking at fallen, cursed blue. Think of how much more vivid and beautiful that's going to be on the new earth. That's what Paul is talking about here, creation being liberated from this curse. So this glory to be revealed that Paul is talking about here in verse 18, it's not, it's not going to heaven to be with Jesus, although that certainly is something that's going to happen. All Christians who have died, their souls are now with Jesus, and they're in a much better place, and we can call that heaven, so don't misunderstand me. That is certainly part of the hope of the Christian. Every deceased Christian's soul is with Jesus. Their bodies are still in the ground. What I'm talking about, what Paul's talking about, is the time when Jesus comes again to finish everything. Souls with Jesus now are in a better place, but that's not their final place. There's something better coming in the end when Jesus returns, and we have one more wonderful promise here in verse 23, which has got to be especially comforting to anybody here today who is suffering from chronic pain or mental illness or a physical handicap or somebody who's just so discouraged about getting old, a recurring illness, maybe the death of loved ones that you're mourning here recently. Maybe you've gotten some news lately about your own longevity. You don't want to die. You see yourself running out of energy, and you're just overcome with hopelessness. Look, look what it says in verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's not just the trees and the lakes and the earth and the cosmos that's going to be revealed but it's your own body that's going to be resurrected out of the grave one day. Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection from the grave is the pattern of many to come. It's the pattern of all resurrections that are to come for all those who are trusting in him. That's the promise for the Christian. All pain removed, all sickness gone, all struggle with sin finished. I assume there won't be any more baldness. Not sure about that, but it's possible. The redemption of our bodies. Uh, some of you know who Johnny Erickson Tata is. I'll close here with this. Um, <clears throat> she uh, had a diving accident when she was 18 years old and uh, has been in a wheelchair ever since then. And she's uh, a very popular Christian speaker and author, 
and I think she might be in her 60s now, maybe, so she's been in a wheelchair for a long time. Uh, but, you know, imagine how special the promise of the redemption of the body must be to someone who's been in a wheelchair for decades. And here's what Johnny Erickson Tata says. She says, in heaven, she's referring to the new earth here, I will be free to jump up, to dance, to kick, to do aerobics. And although I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise up on my tiptoes, there's something I plan to do that may please him more. The first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. So do me a favor. Do what so many of us who are paralyzed or too lame or old can't do. Flip open your Bible and take its advice. Be grateful that you're destined for heaven, for a new heart, a new mind, and a new body. What a great promise the gospel is. No better song for us to sing than I will rise. And so we're going to do that. Band, you can come forward. Let me close this in in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the glorious good promises of the gospel. Thank you so much, Lord, that the promise is true that the glory we are to one day receive will far outweigh our sufferings. And so I pray that this message would give the suffering patience and ability to persevere by your spirit and in the hope of the goodness of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may stand.